0: Just back from Texas a little bit more tan than I was when I left, spent some time on Laguna Madre, the big bay by South Padre Island, fishing for reds and speckled trout with good friend Steve Brigman and new acquaintance Dano Wise. I'm Brandon Butler.
1: I'm Nathan Shags McLeod and welcome to the Driftwood Outdoors Podcast.
0: If you've always dreamed of finding a special piece of outdoor recreation property in the Midwest, you don't need to look any further than Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. With hundreds of land listings available, Living the Dream Outdoor Properties has that special hunting, fishing, camping, or farming property you're looking for.
1: Living the Dream Outdoor Properties isn't just for buyers. If you have a property to sell, Living the Dream makes the process super easy and brings to the table their huge following of prospective buyers. With the land market on fire right now, Living the Dream will bring you the offer your property deserves
0: when it came time for me to sell driftwood acres there was no question i was going to work with daryl heineman and his team at living the dream properties their professionalism made the process a breeze and they brought me multiple offers in the first two weeks. After my personal experience with Living the Dream, I can tell all of you with confidence that this is the real estate firm you want to work with for any land deal.
1: For more information or to contact Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, visit livingthedreamland.com. That's livingthedreamland.com.
0: Our friends at Mongo Attachments know conservation doesn't happen by accident. Over the years, they have helped transform thousands of acres of land into valuable habitat for
1: wildlife. With the use of Mongo Attachments, landowners, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and contractors have restored, improved, maintained, or built from scratch incredible wildlife habitats.
0: Mongo Attachments is an industry leader in attachments for small and mid-sized excavators. They have a wide array of attachments designed to meet your land management. Management needs, including ice and root rippers, land clearing rakes, hydraulic flail mulchers, forestry head mulchers, hydraulic tilt grading buckets, and tree shears.
1: Mongo sets up every attachment for your machine specs so that all you have to do is hook it up and go to work. If you have land that needs work, get the right tools for the job from Mongo Attachments. To learn more about taking land management to the next level, visit mongoattachments.com. That's mongoattachments.com. Turkey
0: season is one of the most exciting times of the year. Nothing fires me up more than a gobble shattering the pre-dawn darkness. This year, I'll be chasing turkeys with a CZ
1: Reaper Magnum. The CZ Reaper Magnum is built to slay turkeys. It's an over-under with three and a half inch chambers the shorter 26 inch barrels make it more maneuverable in the woods or a blind. The included Picatinny style rail makes adding optics simple and it comes stock with QD swivels in the front and back for adding a sling.
0: Like all the firearms from CZ USA, which now includes the entire Colt line, the Reaper not only functions properly, it looks great doing so. The polymer stocks are completely clad in camouflage. Upping my turkey slaying stealth game even more.
1: For more information about the CZ Reaper Magnum and all the fine firearms from CZ USA, visit CZUSA.com. That's CZ. USA.com.
0: Chances are, you know how important hunting is to conservation, and you likely recognize the incredible hunting heritage we have in America. What you may not consider, though, is how important hunting is to our economy.
1: That's why we are proud to partner with Hunting Works for Missouri to promote the strong economic partnership between the hunting and shooting communities and the economy of Missouri.
0: Hunting Works for Missouri sheds light on the economic impact hunting has on our economy. Since its inception in in 2012, I've proudly served as a co-chair of Hunting Works from Missouri. Our membership consists of businesses representing a cross-section of the Missouri economy. These include sporting goods retailers, restaurants, hotels and resorts, gas stations and convenience stores, and of course all the taxpayers of the state, hunters and non-hunters alike, who benefit from the license fees, Taxes and jobs the hunting and shooting industries provide.
1: To learn more about Hunting Works for Missouri, which is a program of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, visit huntingworksformo.com. That's huntingworksformo.com.
0: Big shout out and thanks to everyone who's taken a minute to review us online. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done it yet, we ask you to take 30 seconds and go do it
1: today. Like, share rate subscribe let everyone know how much you love this podcast so we can keep doing it and be sure to follow us on all the social media platforms driftwood outdoors on instagram and facebook and keep submitting those mystery bait bucket questions you can email us info at driftwoodoutdoors.com or again just find us on instagram and facebook hope you enjoy this new podcast
2: Driftwood Outdoors podcast with Brandon Butler and Nathan Shags mcleod
0: Well, it's another one of those podcasts where Shags had to stay home and sweat over the radio board while I was sweating in a boat on the bay uh, outside of South Padre Island, uh, Laguna Madre. I flew down to McAllen, Texas, uh, really wanted to go into Mexico and source some more ironwood, so I slipped across the border at the Nuevo Progreso, and spent a couple hundred dollars on some figurines. The idea was to get a coffee table. The one that I was dreaming about wasn't there anymore. Uh, I was down there six or seven years ago and found this incredible market full of ironwood. Anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's the densest wood on the planet. It sinks in water, uh, but they are carved into figurines. If you ever go into like a craft shop out west or something, you see these um, ironwood carvings. And they're pretty expensive in these mountain resort towns. But I'm getting closer to the source down in Mexico, and my collection continues to grow. I'm well over 100 of them now.
1: For everyone that gives me a hard time, because I posted a photo of my big score at an estate sale with all my antique fishing lures, you and you like to give me a bunch of crap too, but you got a bit of the, the collector bug, because you do have a pretty epic collection of that ironwood, which is really neat.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. And uh, you're right, I do. I like it. I, I regret that I don't know where each piece came from. Like I wish I'd kept like a journal of where each one came from. But now I just want to get bigger pieces. There was a bighorn ram that was amazing. It would easily been a thousand dollars in Estes Park or somewhere like that. First price, you never pay them what they ask, right? You negotiate it down. Was two eighty. I'm sure I could get it for two hundred bucks. It's probably three feet tall. Wow, really neat. So uh, Sean Jenkins, NWTF guy, I'm becoming pretty good friends with this dude quickly. He's an awesome guy, uh, development director here in in the middle America area. I don't know what his states are, but we're talking about going for real and getting this Gold's Turkey done uh, this spring and finishing the World Slam. And I told him, if we go, dude, we got to drive because I'm buying some furniture in Mexico. So we're going to Brave the the north deserts of Mexico and shoot a turkey and bring back some serious ironwood.
1: Did you get it? The the sheep or the
0: no? There was no. I I mean, I guess I could have like taken it to a freight company and shipped it home. But as it is, I bought a I bought a tote at Walmart and wrapped this stuff real aggressively and and shipped home a tote full of. But it's heavy too, you know. So I put a bunch of my carry on padded down the ones in the toe with my clothes and <laughs> figured out how to do it. But, but this trip was about fishing and, uh, always wanted to fish South Padre cause my uncle Tom, uh, went to college at Corpus Christi and would talk about how cool this area was. And I'd always heard about these shallow flats and dude, I had no idea what shallow meant. I mean, we're talking two feet to four inches of water and we're in these bay boats that are like a tunnel hall that go and, four inches of water with 150 horse motor or bigger on them. So at one point I'm sitting up on the casting platform on the front deck and I literally wrap my legs around the tower post and grip the back of the, of the platform behind me. Cause I thought at any second, this boat, is gonna get beached, and I'm gonna get shot off the front of it like, <laughs> like a bullet, you know.
1: So it's going full blast in like four in like inches, four wa- inches of water. Oh, I thought it was there with the pole, just like some of that was going throw. on
0: too. Some of that was going on too, but I mean these these reds that we were catching down there, now, unfortunately, weren't very big. It wasn't what I was used to in Louisiana. Now some big ones exist, but what we were getting into, most of them were called rat reds that were like smaller than twenty inches. And uh, we did get into a few in the in the slot, which is 28 to 29, I believe, that you could keep. So, I brought some back. I was going to see if you and Savannah wanted to come over and do Ooh. redfish on the half shell. Yeah. And uh, But you could see the backs of these fish out of the water. So, that's how shallow it was. Wow. I mean, It was like a six-inch fish in four inches of water. And it was really hard to catch them because anything you threw at them spooked them. A fly fisherman, and we talk about in the podcast, would have really had an advantage.
1: So, you were just spinning Traditional gear,
0: yeah. It was again. It was um the, the guy didn't know us. I mean, we didn't know him. And I feel like that area. There's like 150 guides in that area, so they probably have a pretty standard clientele. So it was poppers and spoons. I mean, there was nothing fancy about it. It wasn't Kevin Morlock. Yeah, uh, the guide Mike. He was really cool. Mike Mall Eminem Outfitters or Eminem Charters. Uh, I would recommend them to anybody. But it, there was no like real advanced. Tactics going on here it was go out, throw popping corks, and throw spoons. And you know, it was a good time.
1: You did catch a nice speckled trout, though. That yeah. was a good sized one.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a good eater size it was mm-hmm. 22, 23 inches, but they get a lot bigger than that.
1: Now, before we get into the podcast, speaking of fishing here locally, the Lake of the Ozark, it's now illegal to be within a hundred feet of someone else's dock up to it or block another boat from getting in and out. The bill was drafted to address a long-standing problem on the lake. Unless a dock is deeded a certain way, it's not considered real property. Therefore, it was not illegal for someone to go onto another person's dock, leaving dock owners with no way to stop people from coming on their private docks, and the bill changes that as well as prohibits boats from anchoring within a 100 feet of said dock without the owner's permission. Now, the first-time violators, it's a Ticket and infraction, but if you're a repeat offender, it's going to be subject to a class B misdemeanor.
0: I see it both ways. I mean, I've hooked a lure on a dock before that I needed to get off, and I thought, man, if I was the dock owner, I'd probably be pissed. But as the fisherman, you know, I'm just fishing the structure that's there, the man-made, you know, dock, and and I need to get my lure back. So, you know, I think too bad the world just can't be everybody respects everybody. You know, like if somebody's out on their dock get away from their dock. You know, don't anchor a hundred feet from them and, and fish where they're laying out or whatever. But also if you're just a respectful, ethical fisherman who's fishing a dock and you get your worm stuck, you know, step on politely, take it off and get off. But doesn't sound like that's the rule anymore
1: it's unfortunate we can't just be decent human beings because even in a situation let's say you step off and then you slip and break your arm or hit your head or something like that now they could be liable for a lawsuit or for your injuries and it's it's just nonsense on both on both ends i think both sides uh can be irresponsible and the the real question though it doesn't say anything about spot lock So I'm curious if there's going to be some gray area of a dock (laughs) owner coming down and yelling at someone like anchored, you're anchored and like, I'm not anchored. It's my my trolling motor, like this type of thing. But uh, the bill was sponsored by Senator Justin Brown out of Rolla. It was the second time the bill had been filed and even Ameren, Missouri and the Missouri Highway Patrol testified in favor of the bill.
0: Yeah. uh, Again, I'm a little torn on that one. I don't own a dock. If I owned a dock, I probably wouldn't be as torn.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've always just avoided even getting on docks. Like, it's just not worth it to me. Like, I've, I've popped lures off and said, all right, whatever, you can keep that one. And I've been with people that have gotten even uncomfortably close to other people's docks or, or even the slips of trying to get in and catch crop. I'm like, dude, this is, even I'm like, this is kind of borderline, man. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not out here to get yelled at by a Karen. Like, let's, we can catch fish somewhere else.
0: Yeah. I would never go on somebody's dock or disrespect their property. But if I, hooked my crankbait on yeah it. i'd like to just step on there take it off and get off
1: but so just watch your asses out there on a uh, lake of the ozark from now on because when this podcast comes out it will be officially illegal to be within 100 feet of someone else's dock tie up to it or block another boat from getting in and out i will say man
0: totally changing the subject one big takeaway from this texas trip i'm buying a bay boat Oh, yeah. Like I was waffling. I mean, <laughs> I
1: can tell it's on your mind. It's just, I made the call
0: to Parker Hall down in Florida and said, hey, I need to pick your brain about a bay boat. You know, with my, with my parents having this place in Florida, um, Bill Conway is going to buy a place in Florida. I want to run down to Louisiana. I want to use it on Lake Michigan. So if I got 20 good days a year out of this boat, like I'm not planning on, on getting rid of the drift boat or, you know, my fishing boat or anything like that, but if I got two Weeks of fishing in Florida or Louisiana, Lake Michigan, a few weekends, things like that. And Let's take it on Taney
1: Como. Let's just be ripping up and down Taney Como and totally that thing. Totally could use it on
0: Lake of the Ozarks. and I want a 24-footer. So there'd be enough crappie fishing space for a lot of people on there. Yeah, we could use it on these reservoirs for sure. Too.
1: Oh, yeah, we'd be balling, man. Big timing. Now here at Driftwood Outdoors, we love everything to do with conservation in the outdoors, and we also really enjoy live music. So next month, the Blue Note and Rose Music Hall here in Columbia will require attendees to present printed proof of a full vaccination card against COVID or a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours of the event. This policy takes effect 7 September 6th. And that change comes less than a couple of weeks after Roots and Blues enacted a similar protocol for its 2021 edition being held later in September at Stevens Lake Park.
0: I like Roots and Blues, man. I think it's one of the better festivals I've ever been to because it's still pretty chill. It's big enough to where there's like a vibe and an energy throughout the crowd. Uh, But there's two stages and there's all kinds of food vendors in between them. So for anybody that's never been, thought about going. It's a great time to come visit Columbia, see how cool this town is and uh, see some good live music
1: now let me ask you this i think i know the answer already but there's been all sorts of upheaval and uproar on social media the great mask debate and people thinking it's a bad business plan to force you to show a vaccination card or make those or even show a negative covid test and make those wear a mask that don't have the vaccine i mean live nation has come out saying that's the way it's going to be at all the concerts every live nation concert across the country
0: garth brooks wasn't like that there was a hundred thousand people there i mean i didn't get vaccinated so i have to run around with my papers you know and and i'm not saying that in an irresponsible way like i just i just feel like at this point you know we're on the honor system with a lot of things in this country we can be on the honor system with the vaccine if you don't want to get vaccinated and you want to put yourself at risk then that's on you as well but you know i've watched a lot of shows lately that say you know, COVID's going to be with us. So if you don't want to get vaccinated, then you got to take chances to getting sick. And if you are vaccinated and still afraid of getting sick because that's happening, then wear a mask. But at this point, I don't want to wear a mask. You know, I, I I took the vaccine and I'm willing to take the chance of going to a concert and and I feel like
1: that should be the way it is. Are you going roots and blues this year? I think I'm going to be out of town. Well, you mentioned Garth Brooks and Garth Brooks. Now you'd luckily you got to see him because he's canceled like the rest of his shows or postponed them
0: uh, the NRA canceled their show. I mean, people are canceling stuff again.
1: And that's kind of what the blue note and Rose came out saying that we're working to ensure we are operating in the safest way possible for staff, artists, crew, fans, and communities at large. We believe it's much better to take these precautions so we can enjoy shows together rather than go back to no shows at
0: precautions are better than no shows i'll admit that
1: i would agree with that as well and i need this stuff to start blowing over so we can have that wedding next year in june and i can charge people to come in to the shags wedding open to the public
0: but dude I, i was in the airport twice this week and it was the first time i've had to wear a mask anywhere in a few months and it sucks I mean, it sitting there breathing your own breath and uh, you know, need a mint. People coming around. <laughs> I mean, it's just hot. You yeah, know? It's it like is. It's 105 degrees outside, and you got to wear a mask. And not outside, of course, but you know, just yeah. the whole thing sucked. And then you've got like the overly aggressive stewardess who doesn't think you have it up high enough on the tip of your nose, and it's like, get away from me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got to watch yourself, man. People are losing their minds on planes, and that's. That's big-time no-no. That's a federal offense. Now, finally, let's talk about the article that you wrote that's up at driftwoodoutdoors.com because I've always wanted to hunt Montana, but I always thought it was out of my reach because it would just be too too expensive. But you wrote about Montana's block management, which makes hunting out there affordable. Can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, we have something similar now happening in Missouri. Kansas has their walk-in program. It's a private land that's open for public hunting uh, through a payment system that the landowners receive from the states. So you can enroll your property in the block management program, but yet you still maintain control of how it's accessed. Some people require you to meet face to face before you can have permission to go onto their block management property. Some people put a box at a gate and say, sign this card and let us know how many go in there. Uh, Some people limit it to two hunters a day. Some people are like any, as many hunters as possible can go in here and hunt. So there's all kinds of ways you can control your own land, but you find these maps and you can just see where these properties are. And I killed a really nice deer on the milk river on one of these block management program properties. I've hunted a lot more of them for birds and and mule deer down by red lodge. So it's just another way to access land and uh, be on private land that the, the landowners are getting paid for.
1: Now, is it still a draw process? Or? I mean, you still have to draw a license.
0: Yeah. There's no draw for this. I mean, oh God, I'll tell you a story. Me and uh, two other people went down to hunt a property and I said, look, all I want is this one deer. And and this was my way. They were like, I was bow hunting it by myself. <laughs> I know the story. And they were like, <laughs> and the landowner was like, we're going to open it up to three different sections of our property on opening day, a rifle season to get three people in there. And I'm like, I can't let that happen because I know where the deer are at light first light. And I know where they're going to travel through to get to where they're going. So I had to have at least two of the three sections, otherwise it would be messed up. And I'd been chasing this one buck all through bow season. Could have shot 20 different bucks. I just wanted this one buck. And I knew I would kill him opening morning of rifle season. And this is a block management piece of property down by uh, Fishtail, Montana. So I get these other two people to go and uh, we all decide to hunt together. But I just want this one buck. And I can't remember this dude's name. I think it was Walt. And sure enough, right at sunrise, we're watching the horizon and I'm watching, I'm watching. And Walt goes, there's one. It's a good one. And I look, I go, that's him. And I mean, that's him as in like, that's the one no one else can shoot. Like yeah. I, I've put in 30 days of work for this deer and I'm going to get it, you know? So, uh, as I'm saying that Walt does like a roll and goes prone and shoots the buck before <laughs> before I can do anything, and I turned like ghost white man i i it was like a level it was a level of anger that I'd not experienced too many times before I just walked off, I just left him there, and he was like, "What, what?" and I just left him on top of the hill and walked into the prairie and shot a
1: smaller one like 20 minutes later. I was so pissed. Dude. Well, yeah, because you had the conversation, too. Oh, like, these this, were, th- this was the only stipulation. Yeah, well, I'm inviting you to come hunt this property, but there's one thing you can't do. You it's will sh- kill a buck today.
0: Yeah. You just can't kill this one. <laughs> You're part of my plan for me to kill this buck.
1: I just see it, too, like happening in slow motion for you, but for him, it happening so quickly and being so proud of himself. Probably a deer of a lifetime. It was a big one. And... <laughs>
0: Ah! <laughs> So, oh. those are the kind of opportunities you can have on block management.
1: Oh, man. Well, lead us in to the podcast now with Steve Brigman and Dano Wise down in Texas fishing for reds and speckled trout. Is, is this mostly just talking fishing or you, you cover everything? Yeah, it's mostly talking
0: the coast and, and fishing the coast. Dano's got a few books on fishing the Texas coast. And um, honestly, I had not met the dude until like five minutes before we started podcasting. Brigman was bracking him up and i looked at his uh, facebook page and he's just kind of one of those guys i mean similar to me in ways that he's an outdoor communicator in the sense that he's writing he's also taking photographs he had a radio show so he's kind of across the board he's a school teacher uh a guide you know really really cool dude he's like 50 and single and living the life man down there you know on padre and in that area so I thought he was a super cool guy. Of course, Brigman, if you go back to the uh, Butler's Biggest Buck episode from last fall, is when I killed my mule deer out in Colorado. I was with Steve Brigman. He was on the podcast before. So I hope you enjoy it. It was a good time. Well, if I heard one story from my Uncle Tom about South Padre Island, I've heard a million. He played basketball at Corpus Christi back in the 70s and used to brag about all of his adventures down here to... South Padre Island and into Mexico and all that. So when Steve Brigman, who's making his return to the podcast after our mule deer hunting trip out in Colorado, invited me to come down and fish Laguna Madre for redfish and trout. I said, Heck yeah, man. And uh really excited to be down here. And I just met a good friend of yours who you said literally wrote the book on fishing the Texas coast. So I'm excited to have Dano Weiss on the podcast. Dano, thanks for coming over and joining us, man. Hey, no
2: problem. Thanks for having me. So you literally wrote the book on fishing the Texas coast, huh? Well, I wrote a book about fishing the Texas (laughs) coast. Um, Not the book. You know, there's always something new and we're always learning something more every time we're out there. So I've fished reds out of Venice and
0: uh, Houma in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And my parents recently picked up a place down in Florida. I'm looking to start uh, fishing some uh, of the Tampa Bay species and doing a lot of research. But I've heard about this Texas coast for years and years and years. A good friend of mine in Houston, Gavin West, had a bay boat. And I knew the guys that uh, started Yeti and how they you know, fish in the bay all the time and Um, long story short i've wanted to get down here for quite a long time i'm excited to be here
2: what makes this fishery so special well i'm a native texan i grew up on the upper texas coast fishing east matagorda bay primarily uh fish my whole life started coming down here in the 80s and eventually moved here in 95 i worked as fishing guide writer Etc. And was drawn to this area because this is much different than Texas. It's much different than anywhere else on the Gulf Coast. The closest thing most people can liken us to is the Indian River System over in Florida, particularly um, back. You know, I know they've had some water quality issues and stuff, but back yeah, that red tide's east, real yeah, bad. Yeah. 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 But over there on that uh, east coast of the Indian Lagoon, just a long, narrow, shallow. Bay system and that's what we have here miles and miles of shallow clear flats um, a lot of good side casting opportunities of course the traditional big three of texas redfish flounder speckled trout but what really drew me here was the snook and the tarpon fishing yeah uh, which you're just not going to experience snook outside of south florida and you don't see tarpon fishing like we have anywhere outside of florida as well so just you get to be in texas but it's as close to living in a Mexican resort area as you can get. That
3: is so true. You know, I, I grew up in in the on the upper coast in Texas City, and uh, boy, the first time you get a look at this bay, this. Uh, a uh, very special place. Hyper—it's uh, one of the seven hypersaline bays in the world, and uh, this clear water over over uh, turtle grass. And of course, you and I just spent a couple of days casting at fish that we we saw. And man, when you get a look at this, I started coming down here. I ended up in Dallas and started coming down here, and, uh in the '70s. And uh, and I just kept coming back and coming back and finally made a bunch of friends down here. And uh, this is a special place.
0: Well, when you told me it was shallow, I mean, I was thinking 10 feet deep. You know, like <laughs> it's the ocean, right? We're fishing the ocean. shallow. There was one point today where we were running across the bay. I literally, I was sitting up on the casting platform in the front deck. I, l- I wrapped my legs around the poles because I thought at any minute I'm getting shot off of the, fr- the front of this boat. Because it was probably... 10 inches of water i mean it is so shallow i think
2: we were in five inches of water fishing yeah we'll we'll run a lot of times in six eight inches and we'll be fishing in 10 inches yeah Uh, no no doubt and look foot deep uh for us average depth of the bay is only two two and a half feet and now we do have some deeper flats you know in the three four even up to five foot range and of course, we have the intercoastal waterway that cuts through to give a little deep water access to our fish, uh, the Port of Brownsville and, and the Brazos-Santiago Pass down there in the south. But by and large, this is just one humongous, shallow grass flat.
0: Yeah, and put putting into perspective what humongous means, because I don't want people to think this is like a bay on Lake Michigan. You
2: know, mm-hmm. this is a, a enormous body of water. Right. The lower Laguna Madre starts uh, just right at the tip of South Padre Island, and it runs... About 28 miles uh, up to Port Mansfield. Now it's going to continue from there uh, for another 20, say, five miles up to the land cut. So overall, you got about close to 60 miles of lower Laguna Madre. Then you have the land cut, which is a um, natural cut, it's the intercoastal waterway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's going to connect the upper Laguna to the lower Laguna. And the upper Laguna is going to run. From just on the other side of Port Mansfield and that land cut all the way up to Corpus Christi, some 70 miles.
0: So all of our bass fishing buddies in Missouri, they should not bring their rangers down here. (laughs) No, No, you're going to be pretty restricted in where
3: you can go (laughs) in that depth. there's... The special these tunnel boats man that's the
0: only way to fish here yeah so i do want to promote the area and tell people that this is amazing like you you got to see this you got to see this this bay it's i've never seen anything like it i'm so glad we got out there to do that but you're going to have to hire an outfitter uh you're not unless you have one of these special boats because you're not bringing your bass tracker
2: down here to fish no now we do have uh in the fall and winter an awful lot of what we refer to as winter texans seasonal residents uh and most of them are from the midwest and a lot of them will bring and say their aluminums like their lungs or, or things like that and they can fish to deeper flats for for trout uh and we do get some reds up on those flats but they can't get into the skinny waters like y'all been fishing all right over that turtle grass right Well, I made a list here of the different fish I wanted to talk about. I just wrote
0: tarpon down because I didn't have that on the list before. But if we could just kind of go down the list here, starting with redfish. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you fish them? What's it look like as far as seasons and best time of year? All the details that are in your book about fishing reds here on the
2: coast. Well, fishing in general for us, uh, just any species you want to name, late September and October, absolute best Mm -hmm. and of course you talk to any fisherman anywhere in texas and they're going to tell you the same thing that's why you don't see a lot of people down here in october because their home waters are also at their peak
0: and and so is hunting i've said many times when i take over the world we're going to have 11
2: octobers and one april just so we can just so we can hear the turkeys gobble exactly so most of the time our our redfish are going to be on those shallow flats Um, right now they're starting to to gang up in the big schools later into what we call herds where you'll see you know hundreds of fish at times and then they begin moving their way down towards the pass because um, they they're going to spawn their their annual run in the fall and they're going to be joined by big bull reds that are moving in from the gulf so at that time you're going to start seeing a lot of redfish around the jetties and in the pass itself now those bull reds you'll you'll catch throughout the year but that is deep water you know you're talking 20 30 feet and you're fishing down deep on them, but that's when you're getting the bigger bull reds. Right. But what we like doing is finding them in that that knee deep water, um, particularly fall, and then winter can be actually really good too for sight casting and fly fishing because we get some super clear water. Water temperature drops, so you don't have as much algae bloom and stuff like that to kind of discolors. <laughs> the uh, water like it looks clear and it is we have very clear water but gets even clearer in the winter so in the winter time what we'll do is wait and get out there about 10 o'clock in the morning after the sun's up let those flats warm up a bit and those redfish will crawl up on those flats Uh, so then we're fishing the flats that are closer to deep water because they'll go back and forth Um, summertime is kind of the opposite you want to be out there a little earlier although redfish are hardier than specs and they'll stay up in those shallows Throughout the heat of the day, but we can year around find redfish on the shallow flats, and and then in the fall we'll we'll have late summer and fall we'll have a bunch around the jetties.
0: So I we should say that we were fishing uh, with Mike Mall with Eminem mm-hmm. M&M Charters, incredible guy. Um, I do think him and Steve were mistaken yesterday. Of course, it was the fish that got away. <laughs> they think I hooked into a bull red. I think it was a 10-foot shark because it nearly yanked the rod out of my hand. We, you know, we caught a number of nice reds, 24, 25 inches, and, and then quite a few smaller than that, too. But on, on, I said last cast— and I threw it out there, and it literally nearly yanked the rod out of my hand. I'm pretty sure it was a hammerhead, but these guys think it was a big bull red. <laughs> yeah. What
2: like what are the redfish like down here? Is there anything you can compare them to, the fishery? They, well, our slot size is 20, 28 inches. So that's what we consider a slot fish. Now, you will get oversized in the bay. In fact, I was just out with Mike a couple of days ago myself and caught a 30. Out of a pod, we pulled three fish out of that pod real fast, a couple of 26s in and in a 30. So we did have one oversized came out of that. Goes back to the, the um, anatomy of our bay in that redfish are very strong, very bullish, and they like to make runs. Well, when you're fishing in a foot of water, there's only one way for them to run, and that's a so they're going to make some long runs uh you know you fish them in the deeper water well they'll bull down you know but here that's what makes it a lot different they're going to run um as far and as fast as they can and and luckily for us we have mostly grass we do have a few areas with shell but you don't have to worry about turning them away from structure a lot of times like you will elsewhere in texas where they can get tangled into a reef or something and cut you off well, this is an incredible visual experience down here. Oh, yeah, what I without mean, that's, doubt. that's why you,
3: you come down here. Mm-hmm.
0: It was beautiful today when we were looking at the, the skyline of South Padre Island. We were across the bay, and Steve and I had said, it really looks like those buildings are sitting in the water. It was a beautiful sight. We yeah. said, so "Wouldn't it be something if we came back and half the island?" Like we didn't know, <laughs> yeah, like one, one of a, those like apocalyptic movies where the island's an island is, event, is
3: Well, that,
2: that's one of the really neat things about here too, and I'm sure y'all got to experience that quite a bit as well. You know, the island itself is only developed for about six miles of its 28 mile length. So there's a lot of very good fishing right within sight of that skyline, and, and you know, South Padre Island. Is a high-rise area, um, but you can also get up the bay, and it doesn't take long, and you're surrounded by nothing. Um, I mean, it is just landscape. Right. Well, and, even driving
0: north on the island, you can get into, like, very scenic, natural areas. I mean, yes, it's gorgeous it was, up there with the sand, yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. So, it's a nice combination of both.
3: Well, well, well Dan, you know, uh, I've done, grew up on the coast, but then, you know, my... I've been doing mostly just inland type fishing and what always gets me is just fishing tides it's just a whole different mm-hmm. kind of thing talk about that a little bit
2: well <clears throat> tidal movement is usually going to trigger more feeding activity our bay does depending on where you're at we have one entrance at the port mansfield cut and in the other entrance is on the far southern end at the Brazos-Santiago Pass. So there's a lot of areas in our bay, uh, if you're, say, midway between those, that you don't get a lot of natural tide movement. So we may be looking for something like wind-driven tide or something like that. But you definitely want it to work around moving water. Uh, now, you can, you can catch fish, particularly since we can sight cast them. You know we can kind of like fish in a bed for a spawning bass you just make repeated casts that so they finally eat get some reaction strikes stuff like that um, but we can do that at slack tide but you're gonna have a lot more aggressive feeding activity around the tides uh, now our tide movement isn't anything crazy like you'll see on the East Coast um, you know less than a foot of water movement you know up or down vertical uh, movement uh, but but a long, foot up and down, that results in a long, a long stretch a lot on the shore. When you're talking about a shallow estuary yeah. like us, exactly.
0: Because so we watched it happen a couple times. It's amazing for right. Midwesterners to see that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know,
3: uh, our second day was not as good as our first day, and we got a west wind and we got a full moon. Mm-hmm. How did that affect it?
2: Well, the full moon is going to affect it. You know, a lot of these fish will feed at night. So generally when we have a full moon, you're going to have your best fish in, Right off the bat, maybe even before sunrise, uh, while they're still active. But then it seems like, at least in my experience, it seems like, almost like clockwork, when you have a full moon, right around 11 o'clock in the morning, you'll have a secondary feed. You know, regardless. Now, if you got a tide that's timed around then at the same time, it's going to be even better. But inevitably, around late morning, you end up getting another little brief feeding period with that full moon. But by and large, just for the day in general the full moon does make it kind of tough in those midday hours yeah uh,
3: and we had a west wind i think that messed with us
2: today too and that's unusual isn't it that's a different wind than what we have and that it'll affect fish behaviors because of whatever's triggering that wind but it's also going to affect you know when you have an easterly breeze our predominant wind southeast so when you have that wind 90 percent of the time the way you fish the various portions of the bay is going to be totally different when the wind's coming out of the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, when we talk about structure, it—it's not—it's very subtle structure compared to what you're going to have elsewhere. You know, we find an area that may have a six-inch change in water depth to that us that's structure. Of course, we have a lot of areas, as as y'all saw with the, the grass flats, and we have what we call potholes, just bare areas in the grass that the fish will be feeding in and around using those kind of like ambush points. But the way you set up to drift, which is typically what we do, is going to be a lot different. When you have a wind that's, you know, 180 degrees different than your typical wind.
0: Yeah, when they said this morning it was going to be a west wind, I was like, yes, you know, because I I go by the old poem that Grandpa Mm -hmm. used to recite. Wind from the south, fish open their mouth. Wind from the north, fish go forth. Wind from the east, fish bite the least. Wind from the west fish bite the best and that's all you need to know <laughs> but it was completely wrong so, uh, down here exactly. it was completely yeah, wrong yeah. down here you know
2: and i remember hearing that growing up on the upper coast and it, it seemed to ring true most of the time but down here it's the opposite yeah. and, so what do redfish eat they're going to eat a variety of things uh everything that is in our bay is going to feed on shrimp now because we are as steve said a hypersaline bay we don't have a lot of fresh water And what does hypersaline mean exactly the water in the bay is more salty than the water in the gulf and we don't have a lot of rivers feeding into our bay system like they do elsewhere in texas shrimp and crabs they need that fresh water to spawn so our shrimp population is good but it's not quite like you'll see in the marshy areas around galveston and, and sabine and stuff but This year, we've actually had a lot more freshwater runoff and and have had a lot more shrimp in the bay. But everything we have, shrimp's going to be on their their menu. Um, Redfish will also eat finger mullet. They love mullet. You start fishing around rafts of mullet, we get shad coming into the bay. They love crab. Again, we don't have the same crab population. You will elsewhere in the Texas coast, but they will eat crab. They'll eat marine worms. Um, They'll eat ballyhoo, which is a, a bait fish that we have down here quite a bit. They will eat virtually any kind of small fin fish or crustacean. Well, one thing that's
3: always, uh, it's always amazed me from the very beginning, I've been really been blessed to, to know a lot of the guides and make a lot of good friends down here, but you'd, you'd buzz off across this just, you know— giant bay they pull up their boat and say okay they were here yesterday morning it's like <laughs> yeah. what, what? you're I mean, half is, a
0: mile from anything this is
3: all the same thing and then you know today it's like we were going to go up here for redfish and then we were going to go over here for trout and it's like okay it kind of all looks the same this is a little different but how does how does the trout differ from the redfish
2: well <clears throat> Depending on what areas, we have some areas that will hold good populations of both. In general, if you're looking for numbers of trout, you're going to fish a little bit deeper. Uh, And for us, that means three, maybe four foot of water. Now, big trout, the trophy trout, they're going to be in that same water as the redfish are. You know, they're going to be in that super skinny. Um, And of course, we will catch some in two to three foot of water as well. And then we have some deeper, we do have some deeper areas, particularly here on the west side, um, that, you know, the bay waters, five, six, even at some points, eight feet. And we'll have some grass humps that jump up, some bars and humps that jump up to about three foot of the surface. And those areas are always really good, especially in the summer months uh, for trout. Now, folks that listen to the podcast
0: a lot, they know that I I travel. So I often pick up the interviews, and then my partner and I, Shags, we bring this in and take it out. But you start talking about trout, and he starts sweating. Like, that's his passion. (laughs) So we have to do a good job of explaining what trout we're talking about. Because right now, he's thinking, wait, there's trout in the ocean? But they're not the same kind of
2: trout we're catching in the Current River. No, they're not. Spotted sea trout is is the proper name we call them speckled trout but they're not actually a trout species at all um so they're in the same family as the redfish and everything but they they look like a trout and that's where they got their name and that's a common fish species throughout the gulf coast it's really one that people target for the table that's the one that i eat Um, Redfish is a little little too strong for my taste most of the time. I will eat them and eat them on a half shell. But if I'm going to go eat fish, speckled trout is what I personally like to eat. Well,
3: that's the one thing down here, man. Everything. I mean, it's, everything's good. You know, the redfish, the trout.
2: Oh, a lot of people love redfish. I'm, I'm one of those people. Yeah, I say a lot of people love redfish. I've just always been one. I, I like fried fish. I love fried trout. They're they're a much milder tasting fish. So we hit the jackpot on a recommendation from Mike at a place called
0: Joe's Oyster House. Hey, over in Port Isabel. Oh my gosh, man! Like we're off the island when we're over there eating so the prices are down quite a bit i couldn't believe how great the food was mm-hmm. how much you got for the price i mean i would recommend anybody go to that place to eat when they come down here. that's
3: right we, we go in there for lunch you know after we'd fish and uh and today we were in there and the guy came along and Gave us all this food we had ordered. was kind of ridiculous. We were making a fool of ourselves.
0: <laughs> he made fun of us.
3: <laughs> and he goes, do y'all need a friend to help eat it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we actually had uh, a fresh redfish today that mm-hmm. Mike filleted for us. We took it into the restaurant, and they blackened it. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Yeah. And then
3: in the flounder, man, that's, that's good chow out there. You got the
0: oysters, the shrimp. I don't know how many shrimp I've ate since we've been down here, but it's a lot. Yeah. So uh, back to the trout. You know how, how do you fish those differently than you would fish the reds?
2: Okay, well, the redfish are going to be your, if you're going to sight cast, that's your primary sightcasting casting target. And a lot of times you're throwing things like spoons, uh, you'll throw topwaters uh, or soft plastic jigs. Every now and then, and I know one of Mike's specialties is is fishing jigs under uh, a cork with a short leader. For trout, generally you're going to, you know, the same soft plastics work topwater plugs definitely will work um fishing them under a popping cork whether you're a live shrimp or a doa shrimp or a jig with maybe a little bit longer leader because you're in a little bit deeper water uh and then also we fish a lot of slow sinking plugs depending on on the time of year but i'd say your rank and file texas fishermen wherever they're at their go-to is going to be a shrimp under a popping cork um although most myself and most of the guys i fish what we do Primarily, or all artificials, uh, particularly for trout. I, when I fish for trout, I like fishing for big trout, so I'm usually throwing topwaters or slow sinking plugs.
0: Now, fly fishing is a huge mm-hmm. passion of mine. I always say, given one day left to live, you'll find me on an Ozark Stream fishing for smallmouth. And for all my friends that have never gone red fishing, I kind of explain it as if you're catching thirty pound, up to thirty pound smallmouth bass, okay. because. Pound for pound, smallmouth are considered the hardest mm-hmm. freshwater fighting fish. And I think redfish would, if you tied a redfish and a smallmouth together, that smallmouth's going skiing. All right. <laughs> because it'll pull it all over the place. But you wrote a book called Coastal Fly Fishing Quick Start Guide. Mm-hmm. I know you can fly fish for reds, but do you fly fish for trout as well?
2: Yes. Um, again, the, the big difference is, and, and that's just kind of a, literally what it says, a quick start guide. is not a comprehensive Um, encyclopedia on fly fishing the texas coast but it's something that a lot of people have been getting into Um, the reason that redfish is the primary fly fishing target is again the sight casting and it's not that you can't sight cast for trout Um, again most of the schoolie trout will be in a little deeper water and that's mostly going to be blind casting Uh, but the big big trout are going to be shallow they're just a lot harder to see their greenbacks really blend into that turtle grass really well. So it's, it's a tough sight to, to see them before it's too late. Um, but actually, we've got uh, one of the, the legendary fly fishermen in, in Texas, Bud Roland, lives over there in Port Isabel. Bud has a number of IGFA uh, tippet class records for speckled trout. And he has the state record record. Um, a speckled trout that he caught on a fly rod right out here. What I
0: love about this book is it's, it's 60 pages and I often tell people you're overcomplicating fly fishing. It's not nearly as complicated as as it's made out to be. Um, If you can throw a fly and it's maybe different down here, so you can educate me a little bit, but I tell people back home, if you can throw a fly 50 feet, you know, you can catch fish. You don't, this shadow casting stuff that you see in a river runs through it. That's not reality. So if a, a fly fisherman wanted to come down here and, and try their hand, because the, the, the lady on the cover of your book, she's wade fishing. Mm-hmm. So you can come down here with a fly rod and wade around and catch some yeah. fish in the gulf?
2: And exactly when, when we're talking about fall again, then you're going to have these fish they are going to be more aggressive. They're gonna, you're going to be able to get up closer to them, particularly if you're wading. If you can accurately cast 30 to 40 feet, you're in the game you know as long as you could see and and pick them at me you know i started fly fishing years ago for bass uh, in the summertime when bass would be for us they would be piled up around these thick hydrilla beds and you know you could catch a lot of them casting in those bucket sized holes in the hydrilla but as y'all know what a conventional particularly then before they had all the weedless stuff man if you didn't get a bite right in that hole you're dragging it back through all the moss and and weeds whereas a fly rod you can just pick it up and hit hole after hole after hole and it's the same thing with a sight cast infrared as long as you don't line the fish if you are off man you just pick it up and you're you're putting it right back down in front of them as opposed to having to reel all the way back in before you can fire off another shot so i had started fly fishing just because in in many instances it's a more efficient way to target the fish Um uh, but I it felt is like, a lot of fun. I felt like today and I said it when we were on the boat.
0: you know we were in 10 inches of water and yeah. we were seeing a ton of singles. And I felt like if I'd had a fly rod today, I would have had an advantage because I was dropping that cork on top of those fish and they were spooking. We'd throw that spoon at them. They were spooking. But I felt like if I could have just rolled one out 50 feet in front of them, I'd have had an advantage today.
2: Without a doubt, I agree with you 100%. You know, you hear that a lot of times that fly fishermen don't care. They only want to catch one or two fish a day. Well, not me. I, want to, I, want to catch <laughs> yeah, I don't know
0: what fly fisherman that is. Yeah. But,
2: uh, but, you know, fly fishing, I do think in a lot of situations, gives you an advantage and i've got a lot of friends that are strictly uh, conventional tackle fishermen and i got a lot that are strictly fly fishermen i do both and you know to me it's just like having a, another club in, in your golf bag you know it's to me what is the best tool for that situation and sometimes it is a fly rod that's a great way to put it yeah. so if a guy wants
0: to come down here and fly a fish mm-hmm. break down the, the basic equipment that he's going to need to bring
2: the best all around outfit that you you could have for our coast is a nine foot eight weight fly rod um you don't need a crazy drag just something smooth with some low startup inertia so you don't pop off your tippets Uh, as long as you got 125 150 pounds or 150 yards of uh, 20 pound backing you're good now a lot of the guys down here will actually use six weights six or seven weights particularly if they are not casting big flies which in this clear water you're not and that's another thing I find an awful lot of times when the fish are finicky. One, as you mentioned, that, that fly will land a lot softer. But those natural materials just have a breathability about them that sometimes will trigger a strike that the plastics won't. Uh, but you get that, you know, and you use a, a 9 foot liters, a standard for us, um, and 12 to 15 pound tippet. And then clousers, of course, go everywhere, B chain eye clousers, particularly for us. Uh, And then there's a lot of local patterns, you know, shrimp patterns. Do you have any of your own own patterns? Uh, I've only created a couple, and I I created one some 20 years ago, I guess, when I was working for Orvis called uh, the Poppin' Shrimp which is now as the one thing I could say was successful although I get no credit for it but you see <laughs> you uh, do now man that's what this being, podcast uh, is for <laughs> it's being tied by a number of commercial outfits um, in fact one guy contacted me a while back from Florida and I, I follow we follow each other on Instagram and, and that's one of his best selling flies and he's always popping it out and he had called to ask me something so I pulled out luckily that's documented and it was in a book on Texas fly patterns some 18 years ago so I sent him a photo of that and said, hey, by the way, I'm the guy that came up with that pattern you're selling like crazy. So. This is off topic, but have you ever gone over and fished
0: those Guadalupe bass? Mm-hmm. I really want to do that. Have yeah. you done it? Yeah. Yeah. What are those rivers? It's like the Llano. Is the that...
2: Llano, the Pernales, the Guadalupe, of course, all of those up in the in the hill country. Now, those Guadalupe bass, they're small. They, they don't get right. big, but, man, they are feisty. And they live in beautiful country. The beautiful, beautiful water. Those rivers are beautiful. So we used to have a
0: drinking game on this podcast where if Shags mentioned he was six foot eight, or I mentioned I was a pilot, you had to drink. But it's been many episodes since we talked about that. But on the boat today, we were talking about... Um, me flying because we were over there by that little airport mm-hmm. and a lot of planes were coming in and out and i i really want to do a trip in texas with my i just have a little Sasna and mm. want to fly around the hill country and hit all these little towns that i've always heard of but have never been to if i wanted to fish those guadalupe bass what town do i need to go to
2: man from really any austin itself but when you're talking to small towns some wimberley has good access uh, blanco has some good access uh, georgetown which is now kind of a city has some has some good access um fredericksburg of course has some good access so just about any of those areas up there you're going to have some access to some very scenic stretches of water and Actually, you'll see some, some areas in those rivers that you'd be amazed that it's Texas.
0: And I did ask you before we got on air if you knew uh, my good friend Russell Graves. Mm-hmm. You said you did. Russell's been on the podcast twice. Only really special people like Steve and Russell get to be on the podcast twice. <laughs> but uh, he lives in uh, Bonham now. Mm-hmm. I went out to Childress when he lived there and killed a Rio with him. And um, I call him Mr. Texas.
2: Oh, yeah. And, he is he is definitely, Texas to the core, an amazing photographer. Yeah. Um, and and seems to be doing real well with his new venture.
0: Yeah, he's he's one of those guys. When you say his yeah. new venture, I don't even know which one you're talking about. Well, this he's uh, got like real estate, right? Web shows, right. and just so many good things going on. But you, I mean, you talk about good photographers. I, I,
3: I'm just thrilled that you just gave me your your fishing for photographs of all your your photographs that you've taken on the bay and of fishing. And this is a beautiful book. Uh, what's your when you? When did you start your photography? What's that? Where does that rank with the fishing?
2: Well, you know, it's funny, Steve. Um, I've been, I started guiding and writing in 95. And I came into the writing end of things just at the end of, I guess, what I'd say were the old days. And, And you remember this. When I started writing, they bought articles from writers and photos from photographers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then as time shortly after I got into it more and more and it got to where pretty much just about every magazine wanted you to provide a package. So, you know, I got me in, you know, Canon a one and started snapping photos, you know, and uh, years and years went by. And I mean, I took okay photos, but they were your standard photos. Grip and grin, and you know, mm-hmm. just your typical stuff. Um, I have a, uh, I I have a background in art, and you know, about five years ago, I got bored with just taking those photos, and I started doing things a little different. I'm not a good photographer. Oh, uh, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, looking I at this d- book, you I know, just, I mean, yeah. well, I, I've got friends that they are legitimate photographers. I'm just a guy with a camera. But I started doing some different angles, and I'd started doing a lot of macro photography. And quite honestly, when I first started doing it, it was it was so different than what you would see at the time in a lot of magazines, particularly in Texas. I didn't even know if the magazines would run them. Um, turns out people liked them okay, and so I just kind of kept doing it and kind of just developed. So I don't consider myself a good photographer. I just take different looking photos, right. you know, did a little different angles, a little different lighting, things like that. Technically I'm not very sound at all. I can remember when I first started doing this fishing with a mutual friend of ours David Sykes a longtime columnist for the Corpus Christi Caller Times and great photographer. We're on a boat and I'm taking some shots and and he looks at me and he says, "You know that's not the way you're supposed to do that." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I'm just trying things a little different." And uh after some of those photos got published, he called me a while later, and he said, man, now those turned out great. I never would have thought to do what you were doing on the boat that day. I thought you were out of your mind. And I said, well, you know, I, I very well could be out of my mind, but, you know, I just experiment. And so I get a couple of lucky clicks, and um, now the funny thing is that's what people know me as, as a photographer more than a writer or a guide, and um, it really i don't see myself as a photographer but well, I you're do a enjoy multi-talented guy i mean yeah. absolutely you're, all-
3: you're, you're a heck of an illustrator too
2: aren't you also a school teacher i am now um so that all started this is my 10th year teaching i was a single dad and full-time fishing guide and writer and uh um, well photographer i guess i do magazine illustrations as well as steve mentioned well, I had two kids, and they were getting to the junior high age. And long story short, my daughter played a lot of uh, travel softball. And, and as a fishing guide, I could take off whenever I wanted and, and go do all this stuff. But the downside was I wasn't getting paid. For some reason, I had a master's in history. You know, I always used to joke I'm the best educated fishing guide in Texas. <laughs> but uh, So I started teaching, and they asked me if I wanted to coach. The last nine years, I was uh, coaching softball and uh and teaching and my kids are grown now and off and so i never quit writing never quit illustrating never quit doing photography but i had to do a lot less of it just because of time constraints. so i stepped away from coaching this year to kind of get back into spending a little more time traveling and writing um and so yes i am i am still teaching but uh, the trying to kind of transitioning back to full-time in it the way i used to now that I'm not responsible for anybody but myself. <laughs> well, Mike
0: was bragging you up. He's saying that you were one heck of a girls' softball coach. We
2: had a good little run. We did. We did well, and uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of success, and, and saw a lot of girls really uh, reach reach some levels. Get on, you know, my daughter, Sebian, and one of them, they got to go play college ball. Um, but it ran its course, you know, and I, I was ready to move on to to getting wow. back to my roots. The book is Fishing for Photographs, a Collection of Coastal
0: Angling Images. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering, I really wonder what it's like down there, what I like about this book so much, it's kind of a visual representation of what I've experienced over the last right. couple of days. They're beautiful photographs, but it kind of tells a story of what it is to come down here and fish. So you're seeing the reds, you're seeing the trout, but you're also seeing the equipment, you're seeing the boats, you're seeing the habitat. I think it's a great visual representation. Even the girls in bikinis. I didn't see that. I didn't see that yeah. while I was down here.
2: Yeah, no, you know, and its uh, I, I am lucky enough to fish with a lot of lady anglers that uh, that that can hold their own and also uh, look good in photos. Uh, but, you know, that comment, I've heard that a number of times about my photos, and I always take that as a compliment because, again, when I decided to made a conscious effort, you know, I'm going to quit taking photos in a traditional manner, I just started looking around and saying, you know, what is it that I appreciate about being on the water and started taking note shots. And that that seems to resonate with some people because I've heard that comment that you just made a number of times. that it's kind of what they it's kind of the experience they had when they're out on the water. That's mm-hmm. awesome. All
0: right, Steve. you have talked the last two days about how bad you want to catch a tarpon. I'm in the same boat, man. man yeah. I, I, yeah. Have you ever seen the old film uh, called Tarpon mm-hmm. with Jim Harrison and Jimmy Buffett and all them? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, Mike and Steve hadn't heard of it before, so they both need to look it up because yes. that is a cool old film, isn't it? Yes, it is. So, again, Tarpon is high on my bucket list. I don't even know where to begin. I know I'm going to begin over probably on the Florida coast, uh, but what does Tarpon fishing look like down here? And how are you going to get Steve a Tarpon? <laughs> hey, that's right.
2: We do have, we have juvenile tarpon here year round. And we'll see them in our port areas throughout the winter months. Um, we will see some tarpon this time of year in the bay. Um, generally though, our tarpon fishing is done around the passes and on the beachfront. So anywhere from late April to May, we'll start seeing the fish move in, the big fish, the migrating fish. And how big is a big tarpon? <clears throat> When I say big fish, I'm referring to those that are in the 125 and up. Wow. Um <laughs> We um, will typically see them moving around, coming through about then, and then we get our biggest concentration of the biggest fish in this time period that's coming up right now as they start making their way back down south to Mexico. Um, that we're throwing swim baits, a lot of DOA bait busters, that kind of thing. There are a lot of guys that will float mullet, ballyhoo, ribbon fish, um, I did tarpon and we'll fly fish for them as well. There's a lot, there's a really hardcore legion of, of saltwater fly or tarpon fly fishermen at work from the jetties. You know, you can catch some amazing fish standing on the rocks down here. Um, but hands down, in my time being here, the best tarpon guide I've ever seen is Captain Brian Bedetta, and he is responsible for a lot of the photos that I've been able to take a younger guy well relative to to me um but he is a hardcore tarpon guy and he's one of those he'll call me and say hey man i just got through fishing this morning i'm gonna run out for a couple hours you want to go and i never say no i drop whatever i'm doing um we did lose one the other day we we've had a good run of fish that we've caught here in the last few weeks that uh anywhere from 80 to 150 pounds but we lost one the other day that I uh, fought for a while. See, that's what I hooked into. It was a tarpon. <laughs> that's what I mean, had Without be. a question. It had
0: to be. It had to be a tarpon. Yeah. I caught. I, I hooked the tarpon. We just didn't see it. That's right.
2: <laughs> well, we had this fish leadered, and then he made one last run and, and thought that uh, I really would have thought that he just had a little bit left in him, but he was able to keep going eventually wore through the line. But before he did... Brian did measure in boats that are a quick measurement along his rails. The fish was, the 80-inch measured stick didn't even reach the fork of his tail. Wow. This was a big fish, easily, easily a 200-pound fish, which the state record here is 210. God. Uh Biggest tarpon I'd ever seen. But an amazing fishery for tarpon. I mean, we jumped eight the other day that were all triple-digit fish. So
0: when you say jumped, like, how are you finding the fish, and then how are you
2: making a presentation to these fish? Um, okay, jumped with tarpon. When you hook up, tarpon is the one fish that people tally, not just caught, because tarpon can throw you good any number of ways. But if you put one in the air, you hook up, and that fish jumps, that's considered a success. Okay, so you've got three levels, of, you know, success there, or three levels you go by. You know, you then you hooked up, you jumped them, or you landed them. And um, anybody that's fished or tarpon for any amount of time can tell you you're not going to land every one you, you jump. Um, we target them when there's known areas. You know, there's areas on the jetties that those of us that fished them a lot know. Basically, there's either anomalies within the rock structure or little eddies that they're going to come to are they deep or do you some of these areas we just know they're there and so we're going to sit there and just hammer it blind casting what you really want again is tide movement is going to trigger them and you'll see fish rolling so you know tarp and have a little air bladder they'll come up and gulp air and so when you see them rolling on the surface you know they're there now that doesn't mean that they're all up at the surface they very well could be deep we hook some fish as deep as 20 feet down uh, but then we'll hook some on the surface, too. So it just it depends day by day. Along the beachfronts, the same kind of thing. You're looking for, for cuts in the bars, areas where the water flows through, things like that bait. Um, and, again, going back to Brian, he's one of the ones that's really pioneered the use of these um, electronics. Uh, these side scans and, and stuff like that with the, uh, with the hummingbirds that they use. And, I mean, you can see the, the profile of the fish and know exactly what it is. Uh, so he's got a really nice setup between that and the, and the Minn Kota with the SpotLock to hold us on a place once we're on those fish. You know. What an advantage that's been. oh man that is. Yeah, I tried to
3: oh. I tried to book Brian and I was just too late, man. Mm-hmm. He stays you know, you gotta get way, way ahead of that. But that uh does he
0: know who you are? Huh? He don't know who you are then. No I don't I get a celebrity a celebrity like you and his boat. <laughs> well
2: I'll tell you that uh that spotlock without a doubt. Whether we're snook fishing up in uh, the the port of Brownsville or whether we're out on the beachfront, uh fishing for these tarpon I've been amazed at that and actually you know we use it a lot snapper fishing offshore too instead of anchoring up or having to drift just spot locking right on top of a structure i'm
3: really i was real intrigued by the idea of catching those juveniles and and you know tell us how big those are but fishing for with them for a fly ride
2: well the juveniles you know when we're talking about juveniles that may be anywhere from 15 to 50 pounds you know and um those fish you can handle on an eight or nine weight anything above that you're really going to need 10 or really preferably a 12 weight once you start getting up in those bigger fish um but again there's some there's some big fish that have been caught uh, larry haynes a well-known wildlife artist uh long time fly rider uh, he's landed six foot tarpon off the jetties himself standing on the rocks with a, with a 12 weight um and again, there's a lot of times fighting those tarpon that uh, fly rod's actually an advantage with that extra length. When you when you're fly fishing them, are you sight
0: casting to them?
2: Do you wait Rarely. for them to roll? Or? Whether you're whether you're conventional or fly fly fishing, yeah. If you see them roll, a lot of times you're trying to you know trying to give them a little lead and trying to place that fly or that bait in front of them. But by and large, whether you're fly fishing or whether you're conventional tackle casting. You know, you just put yourself in an area where there's active fish and you're, you're blind casting, you know, because our water's clear, but it's not that clear where we're tarping fishing to where you're going to see the fish several feet down. Right. So you get an idea where they're at by looking at all the activity and they just kind of work the area well blind casting.
3: You know, it's been a real nostalgic sort of week for me. Like I say, I started coming down here in the, in the late 70s, and it's been interesting to see how it's changed and how, how you know, has developed down here, and I
2: don't remember hearing about snook in the
3: 70s. Were those fish here then?
2: They were here in the 70s and 80s, and then they disappeared with the hard freezes in the early 80s, if you remember. And they started coming back slightly in the 90s, and in the early 2000s, they really started making a comeback. And we have a very legitimate snook fishery here. Um, We catch an awful lot of fish in that upper 20s to 30s you know um, the largest pounds or inches 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 the largest I've been with again this goes back to Brian where we do a lot of snook fishing together was a, a 38 incher uh, but we've seen several 36 and 34s, and those are those are legitimate snook no matter where you're at. I was watching some
0: videos on that before I came down here, and they were all fishing up the uh, Brownsville. The Brownsville Canal. Ship Channel, yeah. Is
2: that what it's called? Yeah, the Port of Brownsville. And that's where the snook are? There's snook year-round there. Right now, you know, during the summer, you're going to find a lot around the jetties as well, and you'll find a lot in the bay especially on the south end, we have below the Brazos-Santiago Pass, which is what connects the lower laguna to the gulf. That actually has been cut all the way up to Brownsville. So that is the Brownsville ship channel. That is the southern end of the lower laguna Madre. But beneath that's a small bay known as South Bay. That little bay system has a lot of snook this time of year, and the flats just north of that channel on the southern end of the lower laguna have a lot of snook this time of year. As we get into fall, uh, Mike and I actually start targeting them in a lot of the areas. Y'all were fishing up here on the west end, west side of the bay, up along the mangroves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then once winter comes, they all kind of shuttle back into that deep water, into the Brownsville Ship Channel.
0: The only time I ever fished snook was at night in. Mm-hmm. Uh fort myers area and
2: they were attracted to artificial lights the green lights yeah yeah do you do that here we do not as much as they do there and i'm not sure why i mean it's not any less effective we just don't fun. have a lot of that that type of uh, we just don't do it like they do
3: that was another thing about uh growing up on the upper coast
2: and coming down here is
3: there's mangroves down here yeah, yeah. there are this, this is a different deal down here
2: yeah, now it's they're coming back now. You know, we had a bad freeze in February, and it killed a lot of the man, or at least knocked them back. Uh, but our mangroves are recovering pretty well. But yeah, when they're when they're good and solid, I mean, it just it's just a different looking area than what you relate to. And, and believe me, I love the upper coast. I love the mid coast. You know, I get back up well. That photo there on the, on the cover of the fly fishing book, that was actually in Galveston. I love all those sawgrass marsh areas mm-hmm. and stuff like that. That's, that's nostalgia for me, having grown up throughout those marshy regions of the upper coast. But that's Texas. That's the Gulf Coast. I mean, that's the, that same way from the upper Texas coast all the way through Louisiana, Mississippi. You get down here by us, and you just don't see this type of habitat anywhere else outside of Mexico and, and some southern extremes in Florida.
3: Well, another interesting thing, you know, that uh, we saw a little bit this time, but I've seen a lot in the past, is if you're fishing at West Bay over, you're fishing up against a, a wildlife area that's mm-hmm. uh, that's really got some unique. Animals, uh, and, and Well, the nil
2: guy in particular <laughs> right. that you'll see, um, it, you'll see them kind of herding up on the shores there. On and on that's a, the Lagunitas Coast Wildlife Refuge is what you're referring to. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that kind of gives us our uniqueness, as I, I mentioned earlier, that you're down on this lower end. You're around some very modern looking area. And, of course, in Port Isabel, very historic looking area. But then you just go a few miles and then suddenly you're in the middle of really untouched habitat
3: yes it's kind of almost uh semi-desert it was cactus and yucca and and whatnot and uh uh, and i remember and and of course this area is just renowned for its duck hunting too Mm
0: -hmm. we saw some blue wing today
2: we did see some blue wing the the bird life along the shore is just amazing oh yeah it's a a great mix uh of really everything it's just it's really a unique place
0: right now one thing that the listeners know i'm afraid of uh which surprises them because i'm not afraid of too many things but sharks man like i don't want anything to do with sharks i'm scared to death of them (laughs) i was 150 degrees on the water today and i was looking in that aqua water thinking i'm i gotta jump in and then i thought no there's sharks in this (laughs) water i can't do it (laughs) what's the shark life like around here
2: in the bay, we do have some. In fact, uh, Mike hooked into a big bull shark the other day right outside of where y'all would have launched from. Um, but our shark population in the bay, again, there's shark. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like it's not a healthy habitat. But it's not as, as they're not as numerous here as they are in some of the, the upper and mid-coast bays in Texas. Where, where during the summer times, man, the wade fishermen are just fighting a constant battle against you know, sharks taking their stringers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Beachfront-wise, we've got a lot of guys that this started, well, back, you'd remember back in the 70s with Billy Sandifer up in Corpus and Big Shell. These guys are trophy shark fishing off the sand on the beachfront. And in, in the recent years, it spread down here. And a good friend of mine that's a photographer, uh, Mark Kano, founded a group Fishing Locos. And they catch big tigers, big bulls. Uh, hammerheads, everything from dry sand. And I've, I've gotten to fish with him, and because and, I've done some shark fishing, but not like these guys do. I mean, this is just wild the way that they fish.
0: Man, I walked four miles down the beach yesterday trying to get my steps in for this pedometer challenge I'm in at work. I'm coming for you all. And uh, I was watching these people throw their children in the ocean, and I was like, there's no way. Like, that's shark bait, man. You're throwing your – giving your kids up. You know, growing up, you, you didn't hear about all
3: the and it may just be the amount of media we have today. Yeah, but I, everything's sensationalized. I don't remember all the sharks attacking people and stuff. No, or I, hearing know, about my it.
2: My version of Wade fishing is up to my ankles. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty rare, particularly down here. In fact, I don't. I hadn't heard of one on the Texas coast this year. But you, I kind of have the opposite point of view. You kind of wonder why it's so rare when you see some of the sharks that are caught. Right off the beachfront. I mean, it's it's amazing at the size of some of these fish that <laughs> they catch, and you think, my God, that thing was—it's swimming right here. Uh, because again, I mean, they they will use jet skis or, or kayaks to drag those big baits out past the second the second sandbar, but they're not that far off dry sand so you i'm, I'm smart not fish. to get in the water <laughs> well <laughs> i don't know if i get in the water i'm in the water a lot of times with these oh, photographs man. i mean it's but again i you know my sanity has been brought into question a time or two <laughs> uh, An- another uh, perhaps
0: false perception of danger uh, that i've now explored twice is crossing the border at some mm. of these some of these border towns I was down here for an OWA conference, and I'll call Russell out because, you know, Mr. Texas made up all these excuses as to why he couldn't go into Mexico with me. And I went by myself, and I collect uh, Ironwood mm-hmm. figurines, and I kind of found the motherlode in uh, Nuevo Progreso. Progreso. Mm-hmm. And I went over there. What day did we get down here? Sunday? Mm-hmm. I went over there by myself and bought like 10 pieces. I really want this coffee table that I found over there the last time I found the coffee tables, but they were seascapes. It was like sea turtles mm-hmm. and sharks, and that's not what I need for my Midwestern okay. living room. I ha- there was one that was like bighorn sheep carved okay. around a stump, uh, but eventually I'm going to drive down here and buy it all. But uh, I find that experience to be awesome. You know, it's it's pharmacies, it's dentists, uh, it's these incredibly cool shops, you know. Um, I I could go over there and stay a couple days. Well,
2: you know, when I first moved here in the 90s, it was kind of common. You just went across all the time. What happened was in the early 2000s, there was a rash of violence along the along the, the border. Um, Progresso always remained kind of out of the fray there, but there was some here by Matamoros and then further around Falcon Lake and stuff like that. That's all pretty much died down now. Um, really, I would say the, the only reason I don't go more than like I used to it's just more inconvenience and it is a safety issue now but you're right it is a incredible cultural experience. Yeah, I loved it. You yep. know, just to go walk around. I, I personally like to just park on this side and walk over. That's what I did. Yeah.
0: You got to pay a dollar. It, they upped the price. Last time I was here, it was 35 cents to get into Mexico, and now it's a dollar. And then they get you leaving, too. You got to pay a quarter to leave. So it was a dollar twenty five to go in and out. But then you go wow. through, like, the whole thing was great. And I had heard rumors that you had to, like, show your COVID vaccination Uh, and I will give credit to the people over in Mexico. They were wearing more masks than the people over here. And what you see here. Yeah. Yeah. So like I actually walked in, I didn't have a mask on. And then a guy tried to sell me one within like 10 feet. And I kind of looked around and most people had them on. So I put mine on and I went through all these shops and I just, it's really cool. Yeah,
2: it it really is. Good food, uh, incredible shops. Like you said, it's, it it is, and it, it gives you an experience that, uh, Again, when when you're vacationing elsewhere in the United States, you don't get that opportunity to just cross into another country yeah. and experience right. their culture. Now Matamoros
0: over here. Mm-hmm. I looked that up online. That's a much bigger city. What was much cool about city. Progresso is it's like it's like one main street that's about a mile long. And it I I think I was there on like a Tuesday or Wednesday last time and it was very dead. But I was there on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon no it was Saturday. Yeah. It was Saturday. It was I, Saturday. I, I, I flew down on Saturday. So it was Saturday afternoon. So the street was crowded. Music was playing, mm-hmm. like live music, and all the street vendors were out. And, man, it was, like, energizing. I loved it.
3: You yeah. know, and you throw that Mexico and on top of this fish, and this is an incredible place because the dove hunting down here is just world class. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and And it's a great offshore fishery to so i mean you there's just so
0: many things to do here. But the Matamoros, I mean, it's like a half a million people. That's a
2: giant it's city. It's a giant city, but they have it set up where when you walk across the border, you have a very similar, you walk right across and there there, you've got Garcia's Pharmacy and you've got a little restaurant row and some, so you can go off deeper in there if you like, but they have a lot of stuff right there when you walk across.
0: What about sporting opportunities? Do you, can you go over to, like if you come over here and you fish and you do good for a couple of days, can you drop down into Mexico and do a few different things?
2: The, The the coastal fishing on this part of Mexico is not what it is here because of all the netting, Hmm. the long lining and stuff. A lot of bass fishing if you go to the west. Hmm. Uh, A lot of guys that fish Falcon Lake over in Zapata, they'll also go down and fish Sugar Lake, which is only a few miles down into Mexico uh and do that and then there are still quite a few people to go down hunting into mexico
0: yeah i've got um i've got to get the golds turkey that's mm-hmm. the last one i need for the world i went down to the yucatan got the oscillated so i'm i'm five out of the six done full body mounted so hopefully this spring i'll get it done but we're looking at going in chihuahua like mm-hmm. in the mountains i uh, can't wait to go i love mexico man like i could snowbird to mexico every every winter i love it down there
2: well, and you, you'll see that here again on our winter Texans. They particularly like to go to Progresso. Yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of Midwesterners that, man, they're staying longer and longer. They'll start showing up. Used to be after Thanksgiving, but now we'll start seeing them in October. And they, don't, they used to leave before spring break, but spring break pretty much died off and They'll stay in April and May now. They're, some of them are staying down here six months well, a year. It
0: must be the fact that I'm catching up to you fellas with white mm-hmm. in my beard, but I, they tried to sell me Cialis and Viagra at every, every turn over there in Mexico. Like half the shops are pharmacies, and I'm walking through, and they're like, Cialis, Viagra. And I'm like, not yet, bro. Not yet. <laughs> but uh, can you take a boat from here and go down? Like, what's the rule about crossing that international boundary? Because I know, like, we fish Lake Erie a lot. Right.
2: And you can't do that. No, you. I mean, there are people that will take their, their offshore boats down there, but there there are a lot of customs regulations where you've got to go in and get checked, get boarded, and all of that stuff. So it's not an easy task. Not something people no. do. Got it.
0: Well, man, I know you're on deadline to write, so I'm very appreciative that you came over here. It's rare that I sit down and podcast with somebody I've never met before, but I've heard stories about you for the last couple days, and and we became Facebook friends, so I got to see how incredible your photos are. So I'm I'm grateful that you came over and did this. No, I enjoyed it, man. It It was a great experience. Let's talk one more time about these books, and thank you so much. You, you gifted me and Steve these books. That's yeah. very kind of you, man. Yeah, these are nice. But Coastal Fly Fishing Quick Start Guide. Mm-hmm. Anybody that wants to come down here and fly fish can get these on Amazon, on your website. Yeah,
2: um, they're on Amazon.com. Uh, the photo book and the fly fishing book are also on Walmart.com. Uh, the Tips for Fishing the Texas Coast is the first book I did, and that was probably 12 years ago. I think it came out or 10 years ago something like that it's been a while Um, but again it's not an encyclopedia but hopefully there's a lot of information most people that read it say they learned something so I guess I'll take their word for it Um, but just a real quick kind of abbreviated just what it says it's tips you know it's like a couple long, good long articles. Really, yeah, and you just know? trying to give some little hidden secrets and tips, just things that people may not think of otherwise. So, Coastal Fly Fishing Quick Start Guide, mm-hmm. Tips
0: for Fishing the Texas Coast, and Fishing for Photographs, right. all by Dano Wise. Right. And you, now, you are you guiding on the weekends at all?
3: Or just I, I do a little summer, guiding, or? but,
2: you know, I really spend most of my time... Uh, as, as the title of the book says, Fishing for Photographs. <laughs> oh, right. The second volume of that coming out uh, in time for Christmas. Um, and we got another one coming out here in a couple months called Snapshots from the Coast. Uh, that's, of all things, sunsets and sunrises because people have seemed to be fond of those photos as well. So, oh, you have some amazing ones there. And I appreciate that. We've got some amazing sunsets here. It kind of makes it easy. You ever make it up to the Midwest? I have not. That's on my to-do list.
0: Well, Uh, dude, open door policy. If you want to come up and fish, I got property we can whitetail hunt. I'll trade you anything you want to do in Missouri for a tarpon fishing trip down here. All right, well we'll make it happen. That is an open invitation. And we'll, well take I get you to up go, on Donna. it to go, do Of course. Of course. Anytime I get to hang out with the, the great and powerful Steve Brigman. And he's got the fancy new boat. You know, he's oh, I picked up this little bass boat, you know, and what he picked up was a, a twenty twenty uh, bass tracker with a seventy five horse, like awesome fishing boat. So Well
2: he's still got
0: residual from back
2: when outdoor riding paid well
0: (laughs) (laughs) wait you get paid for outdoor riding
2: (laughs) but all right man Man, it's been great to see you again it's just just good old feelings again
0: thank you again for coming over man no problem thanks for having me give everybody uh your website how to get a hold of you if they wanted to Uh, learn more
2: look at danowise.com uh it's d-a-n-n-o-w-i-s-e.com uh and on all my social media just at danowise
1: man i got to get red fishing it's always been on my bucket list even as a, a kid growing up and if they fight even half as hard as you say i mean even as half as hard as you hear anyone else talk about i mean i got to mark that off the old bucket list
0: if you do you'll understand why i got to get that bay boat and if i get that bay boat dude we're going to be red fishing a lot we can get cheap flights down to florida you know we'll run down to n- new orleans you know it's a 10 hour drive or whatever go do that a couple times a year like It'll ruin you. I mean, it's like catching a 30-pound smallmouth. Yank the rod out of your hands. Just the hardest fight I've ever had on, like, traditional tackle. I love it. I mean, I'm getting ate up with it. Now, I know this is a huge letdown for everybody that listens regularly, but this was an impromptu podcast. I had the travel gear, and uh, Shags is the keeper of the Mystery Bait Bucket, so I did not have it with me down there in Texas. We skipped the Mystery Bait Bucket. Instead of just me and Shags doing one, I think we'll hold on to it because we have some very special guests next week. For those of you that have always thought Shaggs is pretty tough, I'm going to prove otherwise by bringing <laughs> his mom on the podcast. And we're going to talk about what a mama's boy he really is. And we're going to have, you know, Mr. Shaggs on the podcast, too, because he feels a little misrepresented. He's he's not as mean as his eldest son makes him out to be. So me and Mr. Shags will team up on Little Shags and uh we'll expose him for the mama's boy that he really is well,
1: yeah there's not gonna be any argument i'm 100 a, a mama's boy and she's gonna stand up and protect me through the whole podcast <laughs> but the best part about this neither one of them understand they have no idea they're gonna be on the podcast because they are coming in to to visit and my sister and my little seven-year-old nephew coop man is coming out as well and we got a bunch of fishing trips lined up for them with chris nelson and tandem fly outfitters we're gonna chase some white bass we're gonna get him out with Damon Spurgeon and Cardiac Mountain Outfitters, and yeah, it was Brandon's idea to try to get my mom in because she is uh, my number one fan and listens to all the podcasts. And my dad is forced to listen to them too because she listens to them. And he has been uh, upset a couple times with some representations of stories I've told where he doesn't believe he's gotten a fair shake. So I'll be curious to to hear his interpretation if we can get him on there. I know mom; she'll love to come on and talk about how great I am. We'll see if we can get old larry larry mcleod on the podcast but that should be a fun one next tuesday we'll have cooper on too yeah hopefully we'll get him on after after he's gone on a couple of fishing trips and yeah my family will be on the driftwood outdoors podcast which should be highly entertaining be sure to tune in next week for that and gear review coming up next time for the driftwood outdoors gear review It's the end of the podcast, but the beginning of a gear review. Brandon, what are you reviewing for us today?
0: Dano Weiss's book, Tips for Fishing the Texas Coast. So, like I said, I had just met Dano, and he brought the books for me, and I was flipping through them during the podcast. And I really did like how compact they are. It's just a a hard-hitting bit of information, like a few articles compacted into a book. And really, it's just what you need to know to go down there and start fishing. There's no fluff or anything. So on the plane back, I actually read tips for fishing the Texas coast, and it's it's like sixty pages. You know, it's a small book. It, it it really just is everything that you need to know about packing up and heading down to Texas and doing some fishing. So it's it's on uh, Amazon for ten dollars. You can get the Kindle uh, Kindle Unlimited. You can read it for nothing, or buy it for five dollars. I don't know how you can read it for nothing, but I'm just looking at Amazon right now. But, anyways, buy it. Buy it. So, Dano makes a dollar or two because he's a cool dude, as you heard in the podcast. But if you've ever wondered about going down and fishing reds or specs and where to do it, how to take your boat, what equipment you need, just pick up this book. It'll be the best $10 you'll spend on the whole trip. So, Dano Weiss, Tips for Fishing the Texas Coast, available on Amazon.
1: And I want to take a moment to promote another podcast that is very close to our hearts, and that is the New Mexico Wildlife Federation podcast, Ahiva. Driftwood Outdoors produces it, and they do such an amazing job. Since 1914, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation has been protecting their state's wildlife, habitat, and public lands for all to enjoy. Now the Federation is kicking off a new chapter, launching the Ahiva podcast to present information to inform and inspire New Mexicans to conserve their resources for future generations. And the cool thing about it is I do a lot of the editing on it, so I get to listen to it while I edit, and I find it very Im- informational, even though I don't live in New Mexico. I mean, episode three, they got the godfather of conservation in Shane Mahoney, which just talks about conservation throughout the country and the world. So even if you're not living in New Mexico, this is a pretty cool podcast that you should add to your list of listening, and you also support Driftwood Without doors while you do it just search New Mexico Wildlife Federation or Ahiva on all podcasting platforms
0: and we'll see you on the trail early mornings long nights cold heat wind and so many other factors can stand between a sportsman and the trophy they're pursuing
1: that's why it's so gratifying when it all comes together. To preserve that special memory, sportsmen often turn to a taxidermist.
0: At Driftwood Outdoors, we turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy in Salem, Missouri. Larry and Heath have mounted six bucks for us in the last four years, and every one of them looks awesome. These guys are true artists and experts at deer and elk, but can handle all your taxidermy needs from fish to birds to bears.
1: For a taxidermy experience you can trust, turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy. Visit them online at scenicriverstaxidermy.com or or find them on Facebook, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy.
0: At Driftwood Outdoors, we're real proud to partner with Hunt to Eat to bring you some cool t shirts depicting our love of all things outdoors.
1: Honestly, there's nothing cooler than to be doing this podcast and then seeing people wear our shirt, which is an amazing, super cool shirt of a gravel bar campsite
0: if you want to get your own driftwood outdoors t-shirt check out the merch section on our website driftwoodoutdoors.com or visit hunt to eat at hunttoeat.com and pick up the driftwood outdoors gravel
1: bar t-shirt today